We remind you that the Tabernacle Choir broadcast will be from 9.30 to 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. The Sunday morning session will immediately follow. Daylight saving time begins tomorrow at 2 a.m. Remember, brethren, we encourage you to move your clocks ahead one hour before you retire this evening. As you leave this priesthood meeting tonight, we ask you to obey traffic rules, to use caution, and to be courteous in driving. We express our gratitude to a combined Melchizedek Priesthood Choir from Stakes in Salt Lake for the beautiful music they provided this evening. Following my remarks, it will be our privilege to listen to our beloved prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley. This session will conclude then with the choir singing as the dew from heaven distilling, and the benediction will then be offered by Elder H. Bruce Stuckey of the Seventy. Brethren, mine is the overwhelming and humbling responsibility tonight to address you, my dear brethren, who hold the priesthood of God and who have assembled here in the conference center and throughout the world. Some of you are deacons, perhaps newly ordained. Others of you are high priests who serve long and faithfully in sacred callings. All have assembled that we might better learn our duty. Brethren, the world is in need of your help. There are feet to steady, hands to grasp, minds to encourage, hearts to inspire, and souls to save. The blessings of eternity await you. Yours is the privilege to be not spectators, but participants on the stage of priesthood service. President Wilfred Woodruff declared, All the organizations of the priesthood have power. The deacon has power. Through the priesthood which he holds, so has the teacher. They have power to go before the Lord and have their prayers heard and answered, as well as the prophet. It is by this priesthood that men have ordinances conferred upon them, that their sins are forgiven, and that they are redeemed. For this purpose it has been revealed and sealed upon our heads." Close quote. Once I heard from a newly ordained deacon soon after he had received the Aaronic priesthood. He said, Today is my first day to pass the sacrament. I can't wait. I know it is a very holy ordinance, so I'll treat it with care. I have a true testimony of the Church, and I hope to go on a mission soon. May I share with you tonight, brethren, a letter which I received some time ago, written by a husband who strayed far from the priesthood path of service and duty. It typifies the plea of too many of our brethren. He wrote, Dear President Monson, I had so much, and now I have so little. I'm unhappy and feel as though I'm failing in everything. The gospel has never left my heart, even though it has left my life. I ask for your prayers. Please don't forget those of us who are out here, the lost Latter-day Saints. I know where the Church is. 
But sometimes I think I need someone else to show me the way, encourage me, take away my fear, and bear testimony to me. While reading this letter, I returned in my thoughts to a visit to one of the great art galleries of the world, even the famed Victoria and Albert Museum in London, England. There, exquisitely framed, was a masterpiece painted in 1831 by Joseph Mallard William Turner. The painting features heavy-laden black clouds and the fury of a turbulent sea portending danger and death. A light from a stranded vessel gleams far off in the foreground, tossed by high waves of foaming water, is a large lifeboat. The men pull mightily on the oars as the lifeboat plunges into the tempest. On the shore there stands a wife and two children, wet with rain and whipped by wind. They gaze anxiously seaward. In my mind, I abbreviated the name of the painting. To me, it became To the Rescue. Amidst the storms of life, danger lurks, and men like boats find themselves stranded and facing destruction. Who will man the lifeboats, leaving behind the comforts of home and family, and go to the rescue? President John Taylor cautioned us, If you do not magnify your callings, God will hold you responsible for those whom you might have saved had you done your duty. Brethren, our task is not insurmountable. We are on the Lord's errand, and therefore we are entitled to the Lord's help. But we must try. From the stage play Shenandoah, comes the spoken line which inspires. If we don't try, then we don't do. And if we don't do, then why are we here? When the Master ministered among men, he called fishermen at Galilee to leave their nets and follow him, declaring, I will make you fishers of men. And so he did tonight. He issues a call to each of us to come join the ranks. He provides our battle plan with his admonition, Wherefore now let every man learn his duty and to act in the office in which he is appointed in all diligence. I love, I cherish the noble word duty. Let us hearken to the stirring reminder found in the epistle of James. Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. There is an old song of my vintage. It is entitled, Wishing Will Make It So. It is not true. Wishing will not make it so. The Lord expects our thinking. He expects our action. He expects our labors. He expects our testimonies. He expects our devotion. Unfortunately, there are those who have departed from the track of priesthood activity. Let us help them back to that path that leads to life eternal. Let us build that strong Melchizedek priesthood base 
which will be the foundation of church activity and growth. It will be the underpinning to strengthen every family, every home, every quorum, in every land. Brethren, we can reach out to those for whom we are responsible and bring them to the table of the Lord, there to feast on His Word and to enjoy the companionship of His Spirit, and be no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. The passage of time has not altered the capacity of the Redeemer to change men's lives, our lives, and the lives of those with whom we labor. He said to the dead Lazarus, so he says today, Come forth. Come forth from the despair of doubt. Come forth from the sorrow of sin. Come forth from the death of disbelief. Come forth to a newness of life. Come forth. We will discover that those whom we serve who have felt through our labors the touch of the Master's hand somehow cannot explain the change which comes into their lives. There is a desire to serve faithfully, to walk humbly, and to live more like the Savior. Having received their spiritual eyesight and glimpsed the promises of eternity, they echo the words of the blind man to whom Jesus restored sight, who said, One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. How can we account for these miracles? Why the upsurge of activity in men long dormant? The poet, speaking of death, wrote, God touched him, and he slept. I say, speaking of this new birth, God touched them, and they awakened. Two fundamental reasons largely account for these changes of attitudes, of habits, of actions. First, men have been shown their eternal possibilities and have made the decision to achieve them. Men cannot really long rest content with mediocrity once they see excellence is within their reach. Second, other men have followed the admonition of the Savior and loved their neighbors as themselves and helped to bring their neighbors' dreams to fulfillment and their ambitions to realization. The catalyst in this process has been and will continue to be the principle of love. Another principle of truth which will guide us in our determination is that boys and men can change. I am reminded of the words of a prison warden who taught this fact, a critic who knew of Warden Duffy's efforts to rehabilitate men, said, Don't you know that lepers can't change their spots? Warden Duffy responded, You should know. I don't work with leopards. I work with men, and men change every day. Many years ago, 
before leaving to become president of the Canadian Mission, headquartered in Toronto, Ontario, I developed a friendship with a man by the name of Shelley, who lived in my ward, but did not embrace the gospel, irrespective of the fact that his wife and children had done so. Shelley had been known as the toughest man in town when he was young. He was quite a pugilist. His fights were rarely in the ring, but rather elsewhere. Try as I might, I could not bring about a change in Shelley's attitude. The task appeared hopeless. In time, Shelley and his family moved from our ward. After I had returned from Canada and was called to the Twelve, I received a telephone call from Shelley. He said, Hi, Bishop. Will you seal my wife and me and our family in the Salt Lake Temple? I answered hesitatingly, Shelley, you first must be a baptized member of the Church. <laughs> he laughed out loud and responded, Oh, I took care of that while you were in Canada. My home teacher was a school crossing guard, and every weekday, as he and I would visit at the crossing, we would discuss the gospel. The ceilings were performed. A family was united. Joy followed. Abraham Lincoln offered this wise counsel, which surely applies to home teachers. If you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. A friend makes more than a dutiful visit each month. A friend is more concerned about helping people than getting credit. A friend cares. A friend loves. A friend listens. And a friend reaches out. There are brethren in every ward who seem to have a special skill, an aptitude to penetrate the outer shell and reach the heart. Such was Raymond L. Egan, who served as my counselor in the bishopric. He loved to befriend and activate in the Church the father of a family and thereby bring into the fold a dear wife and precious children as well. This wonderful phenomenon occurred many times right up until Brother Egan departed mortality. There are other ways as well by which one might lift and serve. On one occasion, I was speaking with a retired executive I had known for a long time. I asked him, Ed, what are you doing in the Church? He replied, I've got the best assignment in the ward. My responsibility is to help men who are unemployed find permanent employment. This year, I have helped 12 of my brethren who are out of work to obtain good jobs. I have never been happier in my entire life. Short in stature, little Ed, as we affectionately called him, stood tall that evening as his eyes glistened and his voice quavered. He showed his love by helping those in need. He restored human dignity. He opened doors for those who knew not how to do so themselves. I truly believe that those who have the ability to reach out and to lift up have found the formula descriptive of Brother Walter Stover, 
a man who spent his entire life in service to others. At Brother Stover's funeral, his son-in-law paid tribute to him in these words. Walter Stover had the ability to see Christ in every face he encountered, and he treated each person accordingly. Legendary are his acts of compassionate help and his talent to lift heavenward every person whom he met. His guiding light was the Master's voice speaking, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, ye have done it unto me. Brethren, acquire the language of the Spirit. It is not learned from textbooks written by men of letters, nor is it acquired through reading and memorization. The language of the Spirit comes to him who seeks with all his heart to know God and keep his divine commandments. Proficiency in this language permits one to breach barriers, overcome obstacles, and touch the human heart. In a day of danger or a time of trial, such knowledge, such hope, such understanding bring comfort to a troubled soul and a grieving heart. Shadows of despair are dispelled by rays of hope. Sorrow yields to joy, and the feeling of being lost in the crowd of life vanishes with a certain knowledge that our Heavenly Father is mindful of each of us. In closing, I return to the painting by Turner. In a very real sense, those persons stranded on the vessel which had run aground in the storm-tossed sea are like many young men and older men as well who await rescue by those of us who have the priesthood responsibility to man the lifeboats. Their hearts yearn for help. Mothers and fathers pray for their sons. Wives and children plead to heaven that Daddy and others may be reached. Tonight, I pray that all of us who hold the priesthood may sense our responsibilities and, as one, follow our leader, even the Lord Jesus Christ, and his prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, to the rescue. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. President Hinckley. To those who yearn for spiritual truth, some things become self-evident. I bear my witness of these things. God is in His heavens. We mortals are His spirit offspring. Jesus is our Redeemer. Joseph Smith was God's prophet, and Gordon B. Hinckley is His prophet today. Revelations are pouring forth as in days of old. The kingdom of God, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is once more upon the earth. Satan is real and is on the earth as well. He and his legions are wrecking havoc among the children of men. 
He speaks no truth, feels no love, promotes no good, and avows nothing but mayhem and destruction. Therefore, this day I raise a voice of warning. It is an urgent, sobering reminder and invitation to good men and women everywhere. Listen to these words of revelation received on November 1, 1831. Wherefore, I, the Lord, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and spake unto him from heaven, and gave him commandments. For I am no respecter of persons, and will that all men shall know that the day speedily cometh, the hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand, when peace shall be taken from the earth, and the devil shall have power over his own dominion. The Lord speaks of calamity to befall the inhabitants of the earth. Calamities come in different forms. From time to time, the forces of nature convulse, and we are wrenched by their destructive powers. Even more devastating, however, are the calamitous forces of evil which surfeit us continually. In accordance with the prophecy of 1831, peace has now been taken from the earth, and the devil has power over his dominion. His beguiling ways are mesmerizing the people. Temptation is on every hand. Crassness and wrangling have become a way of life. What was once considered awful is now considered tame. What at first titillates soon captivates and then destroys. This calamity of evil will continue to spread until the whole world groaneth under the bondage of sin. Therefore, this voice of warning, beware of worldly lusts. They stimulate the senses but enslave the soul. Those caught in the web of sensuality find that it is not easily broken. Beware of worldly wealth. Its promises are enticing, but its happiness is a mirage. Wrote the Apostle Paul, the love of money is the root of all evil. Beware of worldly preoccupation with self. The highs are counterfeit, the lows are despairing. Love, kindness, personal fulfillment, and genuine self-worth are found in service to God and others, not in service to oneself. In the midst of these perils, there is a safe harbor. From the revelation cited earlier comes this assurance, And also the Lord shall have power over his saints, and shall reign in their midst, and shall come down in judgment upon Idumea or the world. There is safety in being a saint. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ today are known as Latter-day Saints. In addition to being the Lord's designation of those who belong to His Church, this appellation also serves as His invitation to a better way of life. This became clear to me some years ago when, as a young father, I needed to purchase some temple clothing. Upon entering the store, my attention was drawn to a sign on the counter that read, For Latter-day Saints Only. The message jolted me. In my mind, an argument ensued. Why does it say, For Latter-day Saints Only, I ask myself? Why doesn't it say something like, For Endowed Church Members? Why does it raise this issue of being a Latter-day Saint? The years since have tempered my impetuous nature. That argumentative encounter of long ago has become a treasured, defining moment. The experience taught me that just being a member of the Church is not enough. 
nor is merely going through the motions of membership sufficient in this day of cynicism and unbelief. The spirituality and vigilance of a saint are required. Being saintly is to be good, pure, and upright. For such persons, virtues are not only declared but lived. For Latter-day Saints, the kingdom of God, or the Church, is not a byline. Rather, it is the center and the substance of their lives. Home is a bit of heaven, not a hotel. The family is not merely a societal or biological entity. It is the basic eternal unit in God's kingdom, wherein the gospel of Jesus Christ is taught and lived. Indeed, Latter-day Saints diligently strive to become a little better, a little kinder, a little nobler in the daily affairs of life. The Lord sets forth the way in which such progress is made. Said He, Wherefore seek not the things of this world, but seek ye first to build up the kingdom of God and establish His righteousness. Holding to this course provides Latter-day Saints the means for avoiding the treacherous shoals of worldliness. Living this way enables members of the Church to become the covenant people of the Lord. For our time, we have the following prophetic guidance from President Hinckley on how this can be done. I quote, We are a covenant people. I have had the feeling that if we could just encourage our people to live by three or four covenants, everything else would take care of itself. The first of these is the covenant of the sacrament, in which we take upon ourselves the name of the Savior and agree to keep His commandments with the promise in His covenant that He will bless us with His Spirit. The second is the covenant of tithing. The promise is that He will stay the destroyer and open the windows of heaven and pour down blessings that there will not be room enough to receive them. Three, the covenants of the temple. Sacrifice, the willingness to sacrifice for this the Lord's work, and inherent in that law of sacrifice is the very essence of the atonement. Consecration, which is associated with it, a willingness to give everything, if need be, to help in the unrolling of this great work, and a covenant of love and loyalty one to another in the bonds of marriage, fidelity, chastity, morality. If our people could only learn to live by these covenants, everything else would take care of itself. I am satisfied." Close quote. Worldly lusts lose their allure as the Holy Sacrament assumes its proper place in our lives. This covenant enables the faithful to keep themselves unspotted from the world. Worldly wealth loses its peril through conscientious adherence to the Lord's tithe. Returning to Him a tithe of all He provides engenders in the giver a love of God above all else. It introduces the obedient to the higher law of giving without command. The fast and fast offerings are embraced, and power comes to loose the bands of wickedness, lift heavy burdens, bless the unfortunate, and strengthen family ties. The covenant of tithing weans the faithful from the love of money and its attendant trappings. Worldly preoccupation with self surrenders to sacrifice, consecration, and the other holy covenants of the temple. As the Redeemer of the world gave all that we might be saved, these covenants allow us to give our all in the accomplishment of Heavenly Father's purposes for His children. And so, fear not. 
The things deemed weak by the world overthrow evils that appear so mighty and strong. Righteous men speak in the name of God the Lord. Faith increases in the earth. The everlasting covenants blossom in the lives of Latter-day Saints. The fullness of Christ's gospel is proclaimed by precept and example unto the ends of the world. And the Lord's covenant people prepare this earth for His second coming. This is our duty. May the Lord sustain us in it is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Granted, brothers and sisters, the world is in commotion, but the kingdom is in forward motion as never before. Its distinctiveness is being more sharply defined by adverse trends in the world, where traditional values are not fastened down by the rivets of the Restoration. They are sliding swiftly. The results are contradictory mixtures such as boredom and violence. Some simply exist having no hope and without God in the world. The trek of modern discipleship is taking us through this hostile wilderness, including cultures ambivalent about setting limits and with no breaks. Yes, we have unprecedented mass entertainment and mass communications, but so many lonely crowds. The togetherness of technology is no substitute for the family. Much as I lament the resulting and gathering storms, there can be some usefulness in them. Thereby we may become further tamed spiritually. For except the Lord doth chasten his people with many afflictions, they will not remember him. The Lord is always quietly refining his faithful people individually anyway. But events will also illuminate God's higher ways and his kingdom. Our context is challenging, however. We have many overwhelmed parents, more and more marriages in meltdown, and dysfunctional families. Destructive consequences impact steadily from drugs and violence and pornography. Truly, despair cometh of iniquity. Since the adversary desireth that all men might be miserable like unto himself, his is the plan of misery. The valiant among us, however, keep moving forward anyway, because they know that the Lord loves them even when they do not know the meaning of all things. As you and I observe the valiant cope so successfully with severe and relentless trials, we applaud and celebrate their emerging strength and goodness. Yet the rest of us tremble at the tuition required for the shaping of such sterling character, while hoping we would not falter should similar circumstances come to us. It may be too late to fix some communities, but not to help those individuals and families willing to fix themselves. It is not too late either for some to become pioneer disciples in their families and locations, or for individuals to become local peacemakers and a world from which peace has been taken. If still others experience a shortage of exemplars, they can become such. While Joshua was able to say, But as for me and my house, 
Some individuals, presently bereft of intact families, nevertheless can still say, But as for me, and then so live as to become worthy of all the Lord has prepared for them. Thus disciples stand fast, hold out faithful to the end, and hold on their way, even in a troubled world. However, so enduring and submitting are not passive responses at all, but instead are actually more like being braced sufficiently to report for advanced duties while carrying meekly and victoriously bruises from the previous phrase. What are a few fingers of scorn now anyway, when the faithful can eventually know what it is like to be clasped in the arms of Jesus? What are mocking words now, if later we hear those glorious words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Meanwhile, Paul urges us to plow in hope. Therefore, desperately needed is longitudinal perspective, the hope of the gospel. Today's put-down is then placed in the perspective of our being lifted up tomorrow in God's plan of happiness. Since the Lord wants a people tried in all things, how specifically will we be tried? He tells us, I will try the faith and the patience of my people. Since faith in the timing of the Lord may be tried, let us learn to say not only, Thy will be done, but patiently also, Thy timing be done. Hope feasts on the words of Christ through patience and comfort of the scriptures, written for our learning, and bolstered by having all these witnesses, faith constitutes the assurance of things hoped for and the proof of things not seen. Therefore, whatever our humble furrow, we are to plow in hope, finally developing a perfect brightness of hope. Yet too many of the partially committed, like Naaman, wait for the Lord to bid them to do some great thing while declining his biddings in small things. When humbled and corrected, not only did Naaman's flesh become like that of a little child, but his heart also. Failure to serve the Master in small ways estranges us from him. Those, however, who plow and hope not only understand the law of the harvest, but they also understand what growing seasons are all about. True, those with genuine hope may see their proximate circumstances shaken like a kaleidoscope at times, yet with the eye of faith they still see divine design. Ultimate hope, of course, is tied to Jesus and the great atonement with its free gift of the universal resurrection and the proffer of God's greatest gift, eternal life. Several scriptures describe the essence of that glorious and rescuing atonement, including a breathtaking autobiographical verse confiding how Jesus would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Since the infinite atonement required infinite suffering, the risk of recoil was there. 
All humanity hung on the hinge of Christ's character. Mercifully, he did not shrink, but finished his preparations unto the children of men. But Christ's unique submissiveness has always been in place. Indeed, he has suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning, keenly observing his Father all the while. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. This verse carries intimations of grand things beyond the beyond. In the agonizing atoning process, Jesus let his will be swallowed up in the will of the Father. As sovereigns, choosing to yield to the highest sovereign is our highest act of choice. It is the only surrender which is also a victory. The putting off of the natural man makes possible the putting on of the whole armor of God, which would not fully fit before. Redeeming Jesus also poured out his soul unto death. As we on occasion pour out our souls in personal pleadings, we are thus emptied making room for more joy. Another fundamental scripture describes Jesus as having trodden the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. Others can and should encourage, commend, pray, comfort, but the lifting and carrying of our individual crosses remains ours to do. Given the fierceness Christ endured for us, we cannot expect a discipleship of unruffled easiness. As we seek forgiveness, for example, repentance can be a rough-hewn regimen to bear. By the way, let us not, as some do, make the mistake of thinking the chips we have placed on our own shoulders are crosses. Uniquely, Atoning Jesus also descended below all things in that he comprehended all things. How deep that descent into despair and abysmal agony must have been. He did it to rescue us and in order to comprehend human suffering. Therefore, let us not resent those tutoring experiences which can develop our own empathy further. A slothful heart will not do, and neither will a resentful heart. So being admitted fully to the fellowship of his suffering requires the full dues of discipleship. Moreover, Jesus not only took upon him our sins to atone for them, but also our sicknesses and aching griefs. Hence he knows personally all that we pass through and how to extend his perfect mercy as well as how to succor us. His agony was all the more astonishing in that he trod the winepress alone. On occasion, the God of heaven has wept. One ponders, therefore, the agonies of Jesus' infinite atonement and the feelings of the Father for his Son and for us. There are no relevant revelations but our finite emotional extrapolations 
come flooding in anyway. If, like the Savior, we do not shrink, then we must go with the demanding flow of discipleship, including where the tutoring doctrines of the Master take us. Otherwise, we may walk with Jesus up to a point, but then walk no more with him. Shrinking includes stopping as well as turning back. The more we know of Jesus, the more we will love him. The more we know of Jesus, the more we will trust him. The more we know of Jesus, the more we will want to be like him and to be with him by becoming the manner of men and women that he wishes us to be while living now after the manner of happiness. Therefore, with the help of the Holy Ghost, we can glorify Christ by repenting and thereby accessing the blessings of the astonishing Atonement, which he provided for us at such a stunning cost. So, brothers and sisters, given what Jesus died for, are we willing to live with the challenges allotted to us? Trembling is sometimes both permissible and understandable. There are many specific ways in which we can liken ourselves to these essence scriptures about Jesus and the Atonement, but all are covered under this conceptual canopy. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. In fact, there is no other way to learn deeply. The infinite Atonement is so vast and universal But finally, it is so very personal. Mercifully, through the Atonement, we can be forgiven. And very importantly, we can know that we have been forgiven, that final joyous emancipation from error. By utilizing the Atonement, we access the gifts of the Holy Ghost, which filleth with hope and perfect love. None of us can afford to be without that needed hope and love in the treks through our Sinai's of circumstance. Thus, within the discipleship allotted to us, we are to overcome the world, to finish the work we personally have been given to do, to be able to partake of a bitter cup without becoming bitter, to experience pouring pouring out our souls, to let our wills increasingly be swallowed up in the will of the Father, to acknowledge, tough though the tutoring trials, that indeed all these things shall give the experience and shall be for thy good, and to plow enduringly to the end of the furrow, all the while glorifying him and using the matchless gifts he has given us including one day all that he hath. In the holy name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers, sisters, and friends, the responsibility of speaking to all of you is a matter of great concern to me. I pray for your understanding. My baptism into this Church was one of the highlights of my life. 
I was eight years of age. My parents taught me and my brothers the significance of this great ordinance. My mother told me that after my baptism, I would be held accountable for the things I did that were not right. I remember the day of my baptism very vividly. I was baptized in the baptismal font in the tabernacle on Temple Square. Those who were there being baptized put on white coveralls and one by one were gently taken down the steps into the water. One of the children baptized that day was not totally immersed, and so the ordinance was repeated. This was necessary because, as the scriptures indicate, baptism symbolizes death, burial, and resurrection and can only be done by immersion. It also follows the pattern set by the Savior who was baptized in the River Jordan where there was much water. As Matthew records, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway up out of the water. Even though I was only eight years of age, the words of the baptismal prayer penetrated deeply into my soul. After repeating my name, Brother Irvin G. Derrick, who baptized me, said, Having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Since I was baptized, over 11 million people have been baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in a similar manner and by the same authority. They have been baptized in frozen lakes, the ocean, or ponds, some of which were dug for that purpose. One such pond was the great historic significance. In 1840, Wilfred Woodruff, then one of the Twelve Apostles, was serving a mission in England and felt impressed to go to a rural district near Ledbury. There he met John Benbow, who had a large farm and a small pond. John introduced him to the Congregation of United Brethren, who were eager to hear the message of the gospel. He later recorded in his journal that with no other help at hand, on March 7, 1847, quote, I spent most of the day in clearing out a pool of water and preparing it for baptism. As I saw that many would receive that ordinance, I afterwards baptized 600 persons in that pool of water, close quote. The Savior taught us that all men and women must be born again. Nicodemus, one of the rulers among the Jews, came surreptitiously to the Savior by night and said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily I verily I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was bewildered and asked, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter at the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus explained that he was talking about being born spiritually. He said, 
Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. All of us need to be born spiritually, from 8 to 80, or even 90. When Sister Louise Wolf of the German Democratic Republic was baptized in 1989, she exclaimed, There I was, 94 years old and born again. Our first birth takes place when we are born into mortality. Our second birth begins when we are baptized by water, by one holding the priesthood of God, and is completed when we are confirmed, and then cometh the remission of our sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. Some years ago, Albert Peters told of the experience he and his companion had of a man being born again. One day when Ati Ati went to the in the village of Sassini in Samoa, they found an unshaven, unkept, misshapen man lying in a bed. He asked them to come in and introduce themselves. He was pleased to know that they were missionaries and wanted to hear their message. They presented the first discussion, bore witness to him, and then left. As they walked away, they discussed Atiati's condition. He had had polio for 22 years before that, had left him without the use of his arms or legs. So how could he ever be baptized, being so completely disabled? When they visited their new friend the next day, they were unprepared for the change in Atiati. He was now bright, clean-shaven. Even his bedding had been changed. Today, he said, I began to live again because yesterday my prayers were answered and you came to me. I have waited for more than 20 years for someone to come and tell me that they have the true gospel of Christ. For several weeks, the two missionaries taught this sincere, intelligent man the principles of the gospel, and he received a strong witness of the truth and the need for baptism. He asked them to fast with him so that he would have the strength to go down into the water and be baptized. The nearest baptismal font was eight miles away, so they carried him to their car, drove him to the chapel, and set him on a bench. Their district leader opened the service by bearing a strong testimony about the sacred ordinance of baptism. Then Elder Peters and his companion picked up Atiati and carried him to the font. As they did so, Atiati said, Please, put me down. They hesitated, and he said again, Put me down. As they stood in some confusion, Atiati smiled and explained, This is the most important event in my life. I know without a doubt in my mind that this is the only way to eternal salvation. I will not be carried to my salvation. So they lowered Atiati to the ground. After a huge effort, he managed to pull himself up. The man who had lain twenty years without moving was now standing, slowly, 
one shaky step at a time, Atiati went down the steps into the water, where the astonished missionary took him by the hand and baptized him. He then asked to be carried from the font to the chapel, where he was confirmed a member of the Church. Atiati continued to progress so that he gained the ability to walk only by a cane. He told Elder Peters that he knew that he would be able to walk on the morning of his baptism. He said, Since faith can move a stubborn mountain, I had no doubt in my mind that it would mend these limbs of mine. I believe we can say that Atiati was truly born again. Like Atiati, when we are baptized, we are spiritually born of God and are entitled to receive His image in our countenances. We should experience a mighty change of heart so that we can become new creatures and exercise faith in the redemption of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In order to maintain our standards of worthiness, the personal standards of worthiness to be baptized into this Church are plain. All those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the Church that they have truly repented of all their sins and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve Him to the end and truly manifest by their works that they have received the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins shall be received by baptism into His Church. Baptism by immersion in the water is the introductory ordinance of the gospel and must be followed by baptism of the Spirit in order to be complete. As the Prophet Joseph Smith once said, you might as well baptize a bag of sand as a man if not done in view of the remission of sins and the getting of the Holy Ghost. Baptism by water is but a half of baptism and is good for nothing without the other half, that is, the baptism of the Holy Ghost." Close quote. The full benefit of forgiveness of sins through the Savior's Atonement begins with repentance and baptism and then expands upon receiving the Holy Ghost. As Nephi said, <coughs> Baptism is the gate, and then cometh a remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. The baptismal gate opens the way for additional covenants and blessings through priesthood and temple blessings the transcendent gift of the Holy Ghost, along with membership in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is bestowed by confirmation, by the laying on of hands by those having priesthood authority. This was made clear by Paul to the Ephesians when he asked, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, 
saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. When they had heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them. If worthy, those possessing this spiritual gift can and come to enjoy a greater understanding, enrichment, and guidance in all life's activities, both spiritual and temporal, the Holy Ghost bears witness to us of the truth and impresses upon our souls the reality of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, so surely that no earthly power or authority can separate us from that knowledge. Indeed, not having the gift of the Holy Ghost is somewhat like having a body without an immune system. We believe the Spirit of Christ comes to all men and women. This is distinct from the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught, There is a difference between the Holy Ghost and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Many outside the Church have received a revelation by the power of the Holy Ghost convincing them of the truth of the gospel. Through this power, sincere investigators acquire a testimony of the Book of Mormon and the principles of the gospel before baptism. However, administrations of the Holy Ghost are limited without receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Those who possess the gift of the Holy Ghost after baptism and confirmation can receive more light and testimony. This is because the gift of the Holy Ghost is a permanent witness and higher endowment than ordinary manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It is the higher endowment because the gift of the Holy Ghost can act as a cleansing agent to purify a person and sanctify him from all sin. Because baptism by water and of the Spirit is essential for full salvation, in the eternal nature of things, all of God's children should have this opportunity, including those who have lived in centuries past. The doctrine of baptism of the living for the dead in the temple was understood and practiced in the early Christian Church. Paul, in his great discussion about the reservation, reasoned, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Doing something so vital for those who cannot do it for themselves is truly Christ-like. By laying down His life to atone for the sins of all mankind, Jesus did that for us which we cannot do for ourselves. The prophet Malachi referenced this concept when he spoke of the coming of the prophet Elijah, who would turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest the Lord come and smite the earth with a curse. This is accomplished in large measure through vicarious work for the dead. No other organization on earth is doing more to fulfill Malachi's promise than the Church. At great expense and effort, the Church is now the custodian of the greatest 
treasure of family records in the world, the Church now has 660 million names on the Family Search Internet website. These records are freely shared with anyone who wishes to research them. As I have lived so many years since my baptism by water, I have come to savor the spiritual gifts of the Holy Ghost that come through baptism of the Spirit. I was confirmed 72 years ago by one having authority, Joseph A. F. Everett, a close friend of my parents and a very noble man. I humbly pray that the Spirit of the Lord will put His seal upon the importance of the things about which I have spoken. I witness that we cannot be fully converted until we walk in newness of life and are at heart a new person, purged from our old sins. This can only come about by being born again of the water and of the Spirit through baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. In this way we receive divine forgiveness by which we can know in our hearts that our sins are remitted. I know this to be true, and so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brethren, before I begin my talk, I want to congratulate very warmly this Melchizedek Priesthood Choir, comprised of men from many walks of life, all singing together out of their hearts filled with testimony the hymns of Zion. Brethren, thank you very, very much. Now I seek the inspiration of the Lord as I speak briefly on what I consider to be a very important subject. I begin by taking you back 150 years and more. In 1849, our forebears faced a serious problem. Our people had then been in the Salt Lake Valley for two years. Missionaries in the British Isles and Europe continued to gather converts. They came into the Church by the hundreds. When they were baptized, they desired to gather to Zion. Their strength and their skills were needed here, and their wish to come was very strong. But many of them were distressingly poor, and they had no money with which to buy passage. How were they to get here? Under the inspiration of the Lord, a plan was devised. What was known as the Perpetual Emigration Fund was established. Under this plan, funded by the Church notwithstanding its serious poverty at that time, money was loaned to those members who had little or nothing. Loans were made with the understanding that when the converts arrived here they would find employment, and as they were able to do so they would pay off the loan. The money repaid would then be loaned to others to make it possible for them to emigrate. It was a revolving resource. It was truly a perpetual emigration fund. With the help of this fund, it is estimated that some 30,000 converts to the Church 
were enabled to gather to Zion. They became a great strength to the work here. Some of them came with needed skills, such as stonemasonry, and others developed skills. They were able to perform a tremendous service in constructing buildings, including the Salt Lake Temple and Tabernacle, and doing other work which required expertise. They came here by wagons and by handcarts. Notwithstanding the terrible handcart tragedy of 1856, when approximately 200 of them died from cold and sickness on the plains of Wyoming, they traveled safely and became an important part of the family of the Church in these mountain valleys. For instance, James Moyle was a stonecutter in Plymouth, England, when he was baptized at the age of 17. Of that occasion, he wrote, I then covenanted with the Lord that I would serve Him through good and evil report. It was the turning point in my life, as it kept me from evil company. Notwithstanding his skill as a mason, he had little money. He borrowed from the Perpetual Emigration Fund and left England in 1854, sailed to America, crossed the plains, and almost immediately secured employment as a stonemason on the Lion House at $3 a day. He saved his money, and when he had $70, the amount of his indebtedness, he promptly repaid the emigration fund. He said, I then considered that I was a free man. When the Perpetual Emigration Fund was no longer needed, it was dissolved. I believe that many within the sound of my voice are descendants of those who were blessed by reason of this fund. You are today prosperous and secure because of what was done for your forebears. Now, my brethren, we face another problem in the Church. We have many missionaries, both young men and young women who are called locally and who serve with honor in Mexico, Central America, South America, the Philippines, and other places. They have very little money, but they make a contribution with what they have. They are largely supported from the General Missionary Fund, to which many of you contribute, and for these contributions we are very deeply grateful. They become excellent missionaries, working side by side with elders and sisters sent from the United States and Canada. While in this service they come to know how the Church operates, they develop a broadened understanding of the gospel, they learn to speak some English, they work with faith and devotion. Then comes the day of their release. They return to their homes. Their hopes are high, but many of them have great difficulty finding employment because they have no skills. They sink right back into the pit of poverty from which they came. Because of limited abilities, they are not likely to become leaders in the Church. They are more likely to find themselves in need of welfare help. 
They will marry and rear families who will continue in the same cycle that they have known. Their future is bleak indeed. There are some others who have not gone on missions who find themselves in similar circumstances in development of skills to lift them from the ranks of the poor. In an effort to remedy this situation, we propose a plan, a plan which we believe is inspired by the Lord. The Church is establishing a fund, largely from the contributions of faithful Latter-day Saints who have and will contribute for this purpose. We are deeply grateful to them, based on similar principles to those underlying the Perpetual Emigration Fund. We shall call it the Perpetual Education Fund. From the earnings of this fund, loans will be made to ambitious young men and women, for the most part returned missionaries, so that they may borrow money to attend school. Then, when they qualify for employment, it is anticipated that they will return that which they have borrowed, together with a small amount of interest designed as an incentive to repay the loan. It is expected that they will attend school in their own communities. They can live at home. We have an excellent institute program established in these countries where they can be kept close to the Church. The directors of these institutes are familiar with the educational opportunities in their own cities. Initially, most of these students will attend technical schools where they will learn such things as computer science, refrigeration engineering, and other skills which are in demand and for which they can become qualified. The plan may later be extended to training for the professions. It is expected that these young men and women will attend institute where the director can keep track of their progress. Those desiring to participate in the program will make application to the institute director. He will clear them through their local bishops and stake presidents to determine that they are worthy and in need of help. Their names and the prescribed amount of their loans will then be sent to Salt Lake City, where funds will be issued, payable not to the individual but to the institution where they will receive their schooling. There will be no temptation to use the money for other purposes. We shall have a strong oversight board here in Salt Lake and a director of the program who will be an emeritus general authority, a man with demonstrated business and technical skills, and who has agreed to accept this responsibility as a volunteer. It entails no new organization. No new personnel except a volunteer director and secretary. It will cost essentially nothing to administer. We shall begin modestly, commencing this fall. We can envision the time when this program will benefit a very substantial number. 
With good employment skills, these young men and women can rise out of the poverty they and generations before them have known. They will better provide for their families. They will serve in the Church and grow in leadership and responsibility. They will repay their loans to make it possible for others to be blessed as they have been blessed. It will become a revolving fund. As faithful members of the Church, they will pay their tithes and offerings, and the Church will be much the stronger for their presence in the areas where they live. There is an old saying that if you give a man a fish, he will have a meal for a day. But if you teach him how to fish, he will eat for the remainder of his life. Now, this is a bold initiative, but we believe in the need for it and in the success that it will enjoy. It will be carried forward as an official program of the Church with all of that that this implies. It will become a blessing to all whose lives it touches, to the young men and women, to their future families, to the Church that will be blessed with their strong local leadership. It is affordable. We have enough money already contributed to fund the initial operation. It will work because it will follow priesthood lines and because it will function on a local basis. It will deal with down-to-earth skills and needed fields of expertise. Participation in the program will carry with it no stigma of any kind, but rather a sense of pride in what is happening. It will not be a welfare effort, <coughs> commendable as those efforts are, but rather an education opportunity. The beneficiaries will repay the money and when they do so, they will enjoy a wonderful sense of freedom because they have improved their lives not through a grant or gift, but through borrowing and then repaying. They can hold their heads high in the spirit of independence. The likelihood of their remaining faithful and active throughout their lives will be very high. We are already carrying forward in limited areas an employment service under the welfare program of the Church. This consists primarily of offices of referral. The matter of education will rest with the Perpetual Education Fund. The operation of employment centers will rest with the welfare program. These employment centers deal with men and women who are seeking employment and have skills but lack proper referrals. The one is a rotating education fund to make possible the development of skills. The other is the placing of men and women in improved employment who already have some marketable skills. President Clark used to tell us in these general priesthood meetings that there is nothing that the priesthood cannot accomplish if we will work unitedly together in moving forward a program designed to bless the people. May the Lord grant us vision 
and understanding to do those things which will help our members not only spiritually but also temporally, we have resting upon us a very serious obligation. President Joseph F. Smith said nearly a hundred years ago that a religion which will not help a man in this life will not likely do much for him in the life to come. Where there is widespread poverty among our people, we must do all we can to help them to lift themselves, to establish their lives upon a foundation of self-reliance that can come of training. Education is the key to opportunity. This training must be done in the areas where they live. It will then be suited to the opportunities of those areas, and it will cost much less in such places than it would if it were done in the United States or Canada or Europe. Now, this is not an idle dream. We have the resources through the goodness and kindness of wonderful and generous friends. We have the organization. We have the manpower and dedicated servants of the Lord to make it succeed. It is an all-volunteer effort that will cost the Church practically nothing. We pray humbly and gratefully that God will prosper this effort and that it will bring blessings rich and wonderful upon the heads of thousands, just as its predecessor organization, the Perpetual Emigration Fund, brought untold blessings upon the lives of those who partook of its opportunities. As I have said, some have already given very substantial amounts to fund the corpus whose earnings will be used to meet the need, but we will need considerably more. We invite others who wish to contribute to do so. We anticipate there may be some failures in the repayment of loans, but we are confident that most will do what is expected of them and generations will be blessed. We may anticipate that future generations will also be in need, for as Jesus said, the poor always ye have with you. It must therefore be a revolving fund. It is our solemn obligation. It is our certain responsibility, my brethren, to succor the weak, lift up the hang hands which hang down, and strengthen the feeble knees. We must help them to become self-reliant and successful. I believe the Lord does not wish to see His people condemned to live in poverty. I believe He would have the faithful enjoy the good things of the earth. We would have us do these things to help them, and He will bless us as we do so. For the success of this undertaking, I humbly pray, while soliciting your interest, your faith, your prayers, your concerns in its behalf, I do so in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ. Amen.